1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul writes this letter to correct some real problems in the Corinthian church. And we've looked at three major issues, or we've mentioned them, the radical uh, reworking of the gospel, an embracing of the cultural norms of wisdom, and a rejection of Paul, his authority as well as his teachings. The issue of divisions is really a symptom of, of the deeper problems. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like being scolded. Even when it's for my own good. And strangely enough, I particularly don't like being scolded when the person scolding me is right and I'm wrong. For some reason, that, that makes it even more painful. And I've noticed that in the midst of being scolded, my perception of reality sort of goes out of whack. That I think that people are saying things that they are not, or I read things into what they're saying, things that they don't really intend. If you think about it, even our best moments, though, I, I think we tend to do that. And so as the Corinthians, I try to imagine, as the Corinthians read this letter, what are they getting from it? I mean, what do they hear Paul saying to them? I suspect that they hear the negative stuff, that they, this is Paul scolding them, and, and that's what they tend to focus on. And as we've seen in the past couple of weeks, in chapter 3, in verse number 1, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual but as fleshly. In verse 3, are you not acting like mere men? Verse 16, which we looked at last week, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? In verse 18, do not deceive yourselves. And I think it's possible to read these first three chapters and at every turn to hear Paul condemning the Corinthians uh, as he tries to spell out to them the radical nature of the gospel and something that they have really lost sight of. And, and how it stands in contrast to human wisdom. That If you're not careful, I think you hear only the negative. But if you think a moment, in these three chapters, Paul has said some amazing things to the Corinthians about themselves, about the Corinthians. Let me just give you a list. They are the church of God in Corinth. It's no small thing. God has called them to be his people. God has chosen them to be his people. And this is one of those interesting things because they might hear only the negative. If you remember in chapter uh, 2, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. I think they're hearing, oh, Paul, you're saying we're weak, we're foolish, we're nothings. They're not hearing Paul saying, God chose you to be his people. It was the power of God that transformed them. They have the spirit of God who lives in them. The spirit of God, by the way, knows the things of God. They have the mind of Christ. They are God's field. They are God's temple. And as we saw last week at the end of the sermon, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, the world, life, death, the present, the future. This is pretty heady stuff. But I think they only hear the negative things. And when we come to chapter 4, I think Paul anticipates that they hear something and sort of run with it in the wrong direction and he wants to get them back on track. Paul must correct a misunderstanding or what might become a misunderstanding by them hearing what they want to hear and not really listening to what he's saying. Chapter 4 is difficult because on the one hand, Paul must reassert his authority, saying that his gospel, 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel. We can't choose something else. It is the only gospel. And, and they can't choose his message and reject him, by the way. And yet, on the other hand, in reasserting his authority, he can't contradict what he said in chapter 3 about being a servant. He's a servant, not a master. Well, if he's a servant and not the master, then how dare he reassert his authority? In chapter 4, Paul will use three models to uh, explain that he is an apostle and to reassert his authority. First of all, he expands on the model of the servant. I think this is where the misunderstanding may come in. Secondly, he argues, well, he bases his model of apostleship on the cross. And then lastly, he uses the model of the father with his children. Let's look at the first five verses and the model of the servant or the steward here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So then, so he's coming to some conclusion here, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. The paragraph brings in things, two things from the previous argument. The idea of the apostle as a servant, and I should perhaps be more clear, apostles as servants, because Paul's not simply talking about himself here, and the idea of the coming judgment, that there will be an examination and there will be a judgment. We learn for the first time, by inference, that the Corinthians have, in fact, been sitting in judgment on Paul. In verse number three, he says, I care very little if I am judged by you. Um, now we begin to get a sense of the, of the real conflict that is going on here. In chapter three, which we saw last week, Paul tells, tells them, I, Apollos, Cephas, we belong to you. All things are yours. But this has to be understood in light of what he says earlier, that all things belong to God. So that the Corinthians, and this I think is where they're thinking we've got them here, they need to understand that Paul is a servant, but he is a servant of God, a servant of Christ, and not their servant. What is significant, and the NIV unfortunately I think does not convey this, is that Paul changes the word that he uses. In chapter 3, he uses a word that we're familiar with in English, diakonoi, we know the word deacon. This is someone uh, who, who serves. And it's, it stresses sort of the servant nature of one's work. But here in verse number 1 of chapter 4, Paul uses two new words. And by the way, let me read verse number 1 from the King James. Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. The first word, the word that is translated ministers, hoperitas, is a general term, but it refers to someone who is an administrator, who takes care of the affairs of another. The second word, 
a steward, and here in the NIV we have those entrusted, uh, rather than uh, the word steward, is someone who is entrusted with managing a household. And we actually get our word economy uh, from this word steward, uh, oikos, house, uh, namas, the law, the law of the house. This is a person who runs the household. And Paul, I think, is trying to bring out two things. First of all, the idea of delegated authority. And secondly, more importantly, perhaps, the idea of accountability to God. The minister, the steward, they don't answer to the people in the household. They answer to God. The authority that Paul has is given to him by God. The secret things, the mysteries of God, these have been given to Paul. He is a steward. He is entrusted with taking care of these things. And by the way, what, what are these secrets? What are these mysteries? It's the gospel. That which people in the Old Testament and previously did not know about, God has now revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. So Paul is to take care of this gospel. He is responsible. And what is it that God looks for as he judges or as he evaluates Paul. One thing. Faithfulness. That is, he is to be trustworthy. He is to be worthy of the trust that has been put in him. He is to be faithful in taking care of the gospel. The issue is not eloquence. The issue is not wisdom. <clears throat> or in modern terms, that Paul somehow be successful. It's, it's one of those horrible things that has crept into the church that people now talk about a successful ministry. Paul says there's one thing that God is looking for and that is faithfulness. And who judges the faithfulness? The person who has entrusted that gospel to Paul's keeping. That means God is to judge Paul, not the Corinthians. The Corinthians are not in a position to judge him. By the way, we will find out in chapter 9, 9 verse 3, uh, that some, in fact, are sitting in judgment on Paul. But when Paul speaks here in these first five verses, he's not being flippant or glib, saying, hey, you have no right to judge me. Don't judge. Sort of the one part of the Bible people seem to know today. Paul's not saying to the Corinthians, you're not the boss of me. Rather, he is making an important point. If the criterion of faithfulness to a committed trust, if, that, if the criterion is faithfulness, then only the one who has entrusted that trust can make a judgment as to whether or not that person has been faithful. Even Paul's evaluations, his own evaluations of himself, are irrelevant. Because he didn't pick up the gospel, it was given to him. So even if he's walking along with this gospel thinking, hey, I'm doing a pretty good job, or I'm doing a horrible job, that is not for him to say, because it was not given to him by himself, it was given by God. As Paul says, it is the Lord who judges me. Paul tells the Corinthians, I do not even judge myself. And it may be, again, that the Corinthians are thinking, <coughs> aha, now we have him. Because Paul has just admitted that he does not examine himself, he does not evaluate himself. Hey, Paul, maybe you should engage in some self-criticism. 
Maybe you should reevaluate your work as an apostle. But Paul immediately qualifies and says, my conscience is clear. That is, he has evaluated his work. He has examined himself. If I know anything about Paul, he has spent hours doing this. But wait a minute. I, I thought that, that job belonged to God. I thought only the one who has entrusted this gift, the, the gospel, can make the judgment. Isn't Paul contradicting himself? No. Paul says, my conscience is clear, but it doesn't mean I'm not guilty. Okay. In other words, the ultimate judge is God. It is the Lord who judges. So the Corinthians need to back off. And that's what verse number five is all about. Don't judge before the appointed time. God is the judge. And by the way, God as judge can see in the dark. He'll bring the light and turn on the lights. And he knows what's in our hearts. Uh, one of the things about uh, modern psychology, modern psychiatry, but even modern cynicism, is this belief that people don't know why they do things. Their motives are, are secret even to them. I think Paul would not disagree. But God knows. God will judge the motives of a person's heart. Judgment's not here yet. Okay, It's not time for judgment yet. When it is time, God will do that work. So Corinthians, you need to back off. It is not your responsibility. You do not have the authority to judge me. I am a steward. I have been given a responsibility. And God requires one thing of me, that is faithfulness. So Paul is a steward. But he is also an apostle. And that's what he deals with next. The second model, the model of apostleship. The marks of true apostleship. Verses 6 through 13. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings, so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. In this section, Paul shows that as an apostle, he's taken a very different route from that of the Corinthians. As he applies what he has just said to himself and to Apollos, he wants to point out that the way he views reality is very different from that of the Corinthians. Let's face it, we are sinners. We live in a fallen world. 
And as a result, we tend to have a warped perspective. And generally that shows up in two things. We think too highly of ourselves and oftentimes too lowly of others. Bob Dylan has called it the disease of conceit. And this is a disease that the Corinthians have. There are three marks of their conceit, by the way, in this passage. First of all, presumption. What makes you any different from anyone else? Who do you think you are? Their conceit is seen in denying grace. What do you have that you did not receive? And thirdly, it is seen in ingratitude. If you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? This is the Corinthian church, infected with the disease of conceit. They are presumptuous, they deny God's grace, and they are ungrateful. What about Paul? What about Paul? In this passage, we have really biting irony. Um, The Corinthians who have the Spirit of God should be humble, and instead, they're not. They've taken on what has been called a false triumphalism, that they have arrived. They are victorious. Paul's view, and we find it throughout the scripture, has been called already, but not yet. That is to say, we live in the present in which God has begun his work, but it will not be completed until the future. So in a real sense, I am saved, I am being saved, but I will be saved when Christ returns. My salvation will be completed then. The Corinthians didn't hear the not yet part. They've been been stuck with the already. And so as Paul says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Already you reign as kings. Yes, the kingdom is here. Paul is very clear about that. Christ has brought in the messianic kingdom in its beginning. But it's not yet completed. It is not yet finished. But not for the Corinthians. They have arrived. Paul uses an analogy that must have been very familiar to them. If you remember from when we began, Julius Caesar actually reestablished Corinth. And it became a place where Roman veterans and then freemen uh, would go and live. It was the custom that whenever a Roman general would be victorious, he would come back to Rome and they would have this huge parade, this huge procession. And he would be there, the victorious general at the front coming in a chariot and acknowledging the the praise, the adoration of the people. Then you'd have his soldiers behind him and then you'd have wagons of the spoils, all the things that they had stolen from the people they defeated. And at the very, very end of the parade, you had captives, those taken in battle, who were going to die in the arena. Those who had been captured would now either be eaten by animals or be forced to fight in uh, fights as gladiators. They're left for the end of the parade because we can all now get into the arena and just sort of bring these guys in and let them be put to death. Paul says, you guys are up front. We apostles that are at the back, we're a spectacle. And not only for humanity, if you wish, but for the whole universe, even angels, we're at the back of the parade. They see us as those who are about to be put to death. You're wise, we're foolish. You're strong, we're weak. You are honored, 
We are dishonored. Well, in verses 11 through 13, Paul abandons all irony and just shoots straight. Says it as it is. The dishonor that he and his fellow apostles have endured, it begins, he says, up to this very hour, and then it ends up to this moment. And in between, we find three particular aspects of their suffering. First of all, expressions of common deprivation, hungry, thirsty, in rags, brutally treated, homeless. These are conditions that we may not have experienced, but we are fairly familiar with. Paul says that being an apostle has at different points in his life meant that he has gone hungry, that he has had to do without water, that he's been in rags. We, we read elsewhere with Paul that he was shipwrecked, he was beaten. Uh, we will come to it in the weeks to come in our reading in Acts. He suffered greatly. He throws something in, by the way, that doesn't seem to be deprivation. We work hard with our own hands. It's not a deprivation. But to the Corinthians, it was. Because as most Greeks thought, if you were a professional philosopher, if you were a professional teacher, you got paid. Same way with us professional sports, you get paid. If you don't get paid, you're an amateur. And Paul refused to get paid by the Corinthians. He worked making tents along with Priscilla and Aquila. You know, for the Corinthians, he might as well have been homeless. What, you, you work? Paul said, yes, we work. The second part here, he, he brings in antitheses that should certainly remind us of Jesus. When we, are, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Life is not easy, but Paul has not responded in kind. And then finally, the third metaphor, or the, the final metaphor, is that of humiliation. We have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. The two words that are used in Greek are almost synonymous. They refer to when you sweep the floor, the sweepings that come off the floor, or if you've been out working and then you take a bath and, you know, all that dirt that sort of peels off you. Paul says, that's us, the apostles. We're the stuff you sweep off the floor. Okay? We're the dirt you wash off your body. Oh, but you Corinthians, you have all you want. You're rich. You are kings. What the Corinthians have failed to appreciate is that Paul, as an apostle, follows the example of Jesus Christ. He follows the model of the cross. A model that makes no sense to us. What? Let me, let me get this straight. God's going to come down and then he's going to die like a common criminal and then we're supposed to believe? Humanly speaking, it doesn't work. In the same way, okay, Paul, let me get this straight. You're an apostle, but you're homeless. You're an apostle, but you have to work for a living. You're an apostle, but you're the scum of the earth. And what has happened is they have followed the model of the world and not the model of the cross. And Paul, as an apostle, is following the example of Jesus. The third model is that of a father, because now Paul must reassert his authority. And he does so as a parent with his children. 
follow along if you would as I read verses 14 through 21. I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip, or in love and with a gentle spirit? It seems rather strange that in verse number 14, Paul starts out by saying that he's not trying to shame them. Uh, boy, after what he's just said, one might take issue with that. Uh, let, me, let me tell you, when we get to chapter 6 and then to chapter 15, Paul will try to shame them. Okay, And he will do it. Okay, But at this point, he's not trying to shame them. Rather, he is trying to warn them. By the way, the fact that Paul mentions that he's not trying to shame them, I think, indicates that they should be ashamed. Okay, that's not what he was trying to do. He's trying to warn them, to encourage them, to admonish them. It is a wonderful thing with Paul that even as he is correcting them, he is teaching them and encouraging them. And how does he do this? He does this as a father with his children. Paul uses the parent-child metaphor in two ways. First of all, to reestablish his unique relationship with them. He uses hyperbole, even if you have 10,000 guardians, 10,000 instructors, guys back in the ancient world, slaves who would take you to school and then pick you up afterwards and would tell you how to behave. Paul says you can have 10,000 of those. I'm the one who came first. I'm the one who preached the gospel and you heard the gospel from me and you accepted Christ. He's not putting down the guardians. He's simply saying, listen, Corinthians, we have a special relationship. You should see me as your father. Secondly, I think he brings up this example to urge them to encourage them, to urge them, to encourage them to follow his example. The saying we have, like father, like son, Paul says, I'm your father. You need to act like me. Imitate me. One of the things that is extremely gratifying about Paul is that he is never satisfied by, to change, or never, never satisfied to simply change people's thinking. He wants to change their behavior. And all these years later, this is something I still need to be reminded of. It is not simply enough to believe correctly or to know what is right. We must act correctly. And therefore the Bible doesn't, this isn't simply a theology book, this is what you should believe. It tells us how we should act. Paul has been correcting their theology. He wants to correct their behavior. And so he's writing this letter. He's sending Timothy, someone who is very close to him, my son whom I love. This man will remind them of Paul's teaching. Paul himself will go to Corinth if the Lord is willing. And then he will deal with those people who have 
really rejected his authority had become rather arrogant. The picture that comes to mind for me is, you know, in some households, the mom will say, you just wait till your dad gets home. Okay, you wait till daddy gets home and then you're going to get it. And the arrogant people here are acting as though daddy's not coming home. Yeah, Paul's not going to come. You know, he likes to write these red hot letters and, and try to scare us, but he's never coming. Uh, Paul says, I'm coming. And then we'll see what's what. You know, the, the kingdom of God's not just a bunch of talk. It's about power. And who has the power of the spirit of God? Is it with you or is it with me? And, and when I come, I, I leave it to you. Uh, when daddy comes home, should he come home with the belt? With the whip? Or should he come with a gentle spirit? By the way, the choice is not between a whip and love. I think love doesn't speak to the motivation. It speaks, I think, of his manner, that he would come with a gentle spirit. Because ironically, even if Paul came with a whip, he would be coming with love. Because if he didn't love them, he wouldn't try to correct them. He does love them. So maybe he will have to bring a whip and correct them. Not literally whip them, but to correct their wrong thinking. Okay, let's, let's tie this up at the end of chapter 4. Going through this, we see that Paul really touches on things that are still important today. How do you speak with authority without being harsh? I think many in the church could afford to learn this. How do you preach the gospel? How do you try to encourage others and say, listen, this is what the Bible says without being obnoxious? And many Christians are known for being obnoxious. And it's really sad because many of those Christians are in fact preaching the truth. They're simply doing it in a very harsh way. And how do you get people to change their behavior to conform to the gospel when in fact they think they're already fine? You know, the beginning of solving a problem is to acknowledge that there is a problem. But if people think they're fine, how can you say, listen, you need to change? Only someone who acknowledges a problem would be willing to change. In many ways, the Corinthians are like the people of the church of Laodicea that we read about in Revelation 3. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I think Paul gives us a good model here for how to deal with people who think they have it all figured out. And he points out the importance of imitation. We will read later on, because it may sound very self-centered when Paul says, imitate me. In chapter 11, verse 1, Paul will say, imitate me or follow me as I follow Christ. I'm imitating Christ. My children imitate me. But you know what? I think that this, these applications are... They're true, but let's get down to the, to the nitty-gritty. Um, I think we are far more like the Corinthians than we would care to admit. We want to be like Paul, the apostle. Yeah, but not that scum of the earth stuff, you know. We don't want to be at the end of the parade. In our thinking, we are far more like our culture. We're number one. We want to be in the front of the parade. We want to be triumphant, victorious. The victorious Christian life. The idea of humility and of deprivation. 
and of rejection? Who wants that? And I think we really need to sort of go back and think this through. We want to be wise, we want to be strong, we want to be honored. We don't want to be seen as foolish, weak, we don't want to be dishonored. But our model is the model of the cross. So the question is, do we want to be at the front of the parade or the back of the parade? The culture says the front. My heart tells me the front. The model of the cross, the model of Paul the Apostle says it's at the back of the parade. Jesus told us about this, by the way. The first will be last. The last will be first. See, the way the world looks at things oftentimes is the exact reverse of what God intends. And that, in many ways, is why it is so hard to become a Christian. Because it means abandoning the way the world thinks and embracing the model of the cross. The Corinthians did that at the beginning, and then it got kind of messy. Nah, I, 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 Jesus came to give me victory, to make me a king, because he's the king of the universe, and I'm his child, so I'm a prince, so I am triumphant, I am victorious. No. God came into the world and died on a cross. That's the model. Back of the parade, the spectacle, the guys who are going to die. That's supposed to be our model. And I tell you what, I think it's only by the Spirit of God that we can embrace such a model. Because that's not, it's not something I want. But it is what we are to follow. Let's pray together. Father, we live in a culture of celebrity. With technology, it is possible to flash our face around the globe in a matter of seconds for millions and millions of people to know who we are, to have fans to be idolized. And we say we want to be like Paul, but I think in our hearts we're more like the Corinthians. We have abandoned the model of the cross, the, the model of the apostle, and gone for a model of success. And apart from your spirit, we're not going to change because we are like those around us. May we in the days to come think about these things and meditate on them. And more than that, May we not simply be hearers, but doers as well. Change our behavior and follow the example of Paul. I thank you for this time that we could spend together today. I ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us. Again, we pray for those that will be traveling, particularly for Eden, as she'll be away for three months, that you would keep her safe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together?
mention two things quickly. Uh, one is we'll be going up to see Paz afterwards, and I would encourage you to do that. The second is John's birthday it was this past Thursday, and try to make it a custom here that as a church we give him a token of our affection and our appreciation for what he adds to this congregation and to our worship. And um, we have something to give to him. We'll give it afterwards. Um, but we just want him to know how much we do appreciate what he means to us. Uh, thank you, John, for all you do. Benediction is the Levitical benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.